Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The line between land and water can take on so many moods. Romance, danger, playfulness, despair, calm, or the storm that follows. In her first collection of nonfiction, A Line in the World, the Danish writer Dorda Noors spends a year traversing the North Sea coast, from where it meets the Baltic at Skagen, across the King River, and down to the nebulous Wadden Sea and Amsterdam. She describes her own life on the water, as well as the lives of others from the near and distant past. The Juddish ship that got stranded on the Vedersö dunes, spilling its cargo of tulips to bloom the next spring and leaving its captain to wed a local girl. The now extinct matriarchy of Sonderho on the island of Fano, where women ran the village while waiting for their husbands to return from sea. Or not. The empty space where Skara Cliff used to jut into the water, and her father's expression as he watched it collapse on television in 1978. In these 14 essays, Dorda Norris invites us into an inner landscape that can be as changeable as the borderlands she describes. Dorda Norris is one of Denmark's most famous living writers, and she joins us from her home on the coast of Denmark. Thanks so much for talking to me, Dorda. Well, thank you for having me on the show. So how did the book you ended up writing differ from the book that you expected to write when you first were asked to, you know, do this thing for the west coast of Denmark? Well, in the beginning, I thought that I was uh, just going to go out to places and write uh, more or less stereotypical essays about um, what this kind of landscape is and the history and stuff. But I also knew that I wanted to add something extra to the writing because I soon found out that not that many women had written about this uh, area. I also knew that I had to donate something personal into the text because um, I live here and my ancestors come from here and you can't write about place uh, pretending that you're not invested in it in, in some ways. So as I went along, it struck me that it was absolutely important uh, to add this personal angle and also that um, it wouldn't make sense if I didn't dive into that uh, quest of what a place is, both on a personal or a, and, and on a collective uh, level. Um, so it changed a lot. And the fun thing is I had one year to write it because I was actually writing on a novel and that was what I was supposed to do. So this was something I did to escape the heavy duties of writing a novel <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and also to just enjoy the landscape that I lived in because I didn't feel like I, I had ac actually investigated it that much since I moved back. But what I found during that year of going into the landscape, going home, writing a chapter, going out again, writing a chapter and spending that one year on it was that when I read it from one end to another, it came off as a novel. I mean, because there is a storyline in it of this moving around in the landscape and learning something about identity, about a place, about all the people who live there and also learning something about uh, yourself and your connection to people 
nature, language, where you come from. And um, so you could say I started out uh, trying to escape uh, a piece of work. That <laughs> and then I ended up writing something that was completely unexpected to me, but was very lovely to write. I really enjoyed writing this book. I really did. It was a huge treat just to be in the landscape and meet these people and and dive into that the quality of uh, of writing something that I didn't have to imagine it wasn't fiction uh it was just there and and I could describe it uh right in front of me yeah i mean i guess like much like the novel you can't really escape it completely when writing as a novelist but you also can't escape the place that you're from and its influence on you. And that's definitely a through line throughout the book. You know, you start mm -hmm. and end mm -hmm. with this Valkyrie wave that staked a claim on you. What was your early relationship to the coast like? I remember the first memories of me at the coast, I'm around two years old. And I remember that it's cold and chilly. It was a physical experience always to be close to this sea because it's uh, it's fierce and it's big and, and it's a struggle to go down to it. And so I remembered uh, it in my body and how it moved and that um, I wanted to be carried by my parents because it was tough. Um, so that is the first memory I have of being close to this uh, to this landscape. Um, but otherwise, the beauty of it, the sheer beauty of it and the harshness of it, and also being in it during storms, and then two days later experiencing the the other side of this landscape when it is just so pristine and so incredibly beautiful and mild, and these two temperaments that come and go that it's one t one day it's just almost violent, and the next is so gentle, it's like a cat, like a big cat, you know oh. One moment you're cuddling up against it, and the next is just go, you have to protect yourself from it. <laughs> you could say. Is that why you decided to move back to the coast? Did you move to exactly the same area or some different place? I didn't move back to the place where I grew up. Uh, the place I grew up is about 90 miles inland. But my grandmother was born not far from the place that I decided to move. So it was a place that I had visited when I was a child. I knew about it. And also it was very practical because when I moved here uh, from Copenhagen, uh, I had had a, an international breakthrough with my writing. So I had to spend a lot of time in airports. <laughs> so I chose a place where I didn't have that far to an airport. Um, <laughs> that I would still be in this immense and beautiful land landscape and and there wouldn't be too many people around and yet not too far from the airport because I had to go to New York and London and you know uh that kind of life it strikes me as surprisingly practical I was expecting a really romantic answer <laughs> um <laughs> but that seems kind of like a lot of things on the coast like I'm reminded of the women of Sonderhu who have these like gloriously painted shipmasters houses and I don't know, reading about it, I expected, you know, some, some kind of mythical, wonderful, like, these are what these shapes symbolize kind of thing. And the way you talk about it, it was just like, 
we had to get the men out from underfoot, so we made them paint things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a practical thing, right? Um, and and I think women and people, uh, or also men on this coastline, know how to be practical and at the same time be very connected to the beauty of this place and and know how the wind works and know uh, what the fronts mean and all these things that are very romantic and picturesque and beautiful and you but you can't live here without being practical and for a modern woman that was the airport <laughs> i had to <laughs> i had to be able to travel to maintain uh my work so i'm interested in the time that you spent um on Fano Island and I guess what you learned about the community there because it was just a year from what I understand Mm -hmm. Um, but you paint such a beautiful picture of what this culture was like and I guess what remains of it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that time? Uh, I lived there for one year that's true and I lived in a residency called the Poets Home and um, I uh, I was in my mid-thirties and uh, I had never been on this island before and I had never spent time in that part of the sea called the Wadden Sea. Um, Part of the story was also that I was in love with a married man back then, which was a stupid thing, but sometimes you do stupid things when you're young (laughs) and then you learn from them. But one of the things was that when I started writing about Fainu, I could not uh escape that feeling of being uh, a woman without a man where the man was gone and all these women who lived on this island uh were independent women who were constantly uh disconnected from their husbands because their husbands were at sea and sometimes they wouldn't see these men for 5 years sometimes they would never see them again because they drowned out there or jumped ship and found another woman in Hawaii. What do I know? <laughs> um, but um, that had formed a community where women uh, were very strong and had power because they were running the whole thing. And when I moved there, that tradition had, of course, uh, disappeared more or less because men didn't go to sea like that anymore. But there was still... Uh, traces of it for instance women would meet at the local inn every saturday and gossip um and that kind of gossip was it was like it was of course social control but it was also part of the remains of the power structure it was like having a board meeting you know who's who's staying with who who's feeding who who's making sure that everybody's okay here what should we do you know so gossip had these two sides and then there was this landscape around uh, the island the Warden Sea which is the most enigmatic landscape I've ever lived in it's uh, super silent and then sometimes there's a, a, a flood and then it's just devastating. Or you can walk onto the flats and walk and walk and walk for hours and you think, oh, it's so, it's so nice. It's so calm and beautiful. And then suddenly the tides rise and they rise very high and very quickly in these places and you will be caught out there. So it's, 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 um, it, it's a sea that, uh, is a bit frightening and, um, 
has sort of an, a magnetic effect. Um, I, I I only spent a year there, but when I had to choose my way out of Copenhagen again, everybody said, oh, aren't you going back to Feno? I just went, I love the Warden Sea, but it has an influence on the lives of people who live there, almost a psychological, magnetic influence on the souls and the minds of people. So I'm going to I'm going to go a bit further north where I can see where the where the ocean is and where I can always read the landscape correctly. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's it strikes me that a lot of the communities that you visited for this book and just the hundreds, the thousands that you didn't visit because there are so many are extremely small. Um, and you write that, quote, small communities under threat of winding down are dependent on new blood. But that's from a chapter in which you talk about how you were kind of uh, ostracized from the community that you'd lived in for a bit for something you said on the radio. And it's also in the chapter, It's you talk about the so-called cold Hawaiians, these surfers who moved to the area of a, the coast called Tu. Why did mm -hmm. you want to contrast these two stories of outsiders coming to insular places? Um, it's true that there are a lot of small places here. And uh, the reason why I describe them in this text is also because I left the big places out because they they will get attention enough. I mean, uh, so I wanted to write about the places that were more invisible uh, to others. But when I moved here, I was single and I don't have children. And what is important for these uh, communities is to keep the schools going. So I might have been a famous writer when I moved here, but I didn't provide any kids for the school. So uh, it was like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Because we want the school to survive. And then in the middle of that, I spoke out about the wolf reoccurring in this landscape because it did that uh, about like eight uh, years ago. The wolf drifted from northern Germany and back into back into Denmark. And uh, a lot of people were incredibly scared of it. And and there was uh, that was my my point was that there was a kind of mass hysteria where people were more scared of that than they had to be. And I said that on the radio. And I shouldn't have said that, apparently. <laughs> because it was it became very lonely here for a while, I, I must say. But um and somebody said, Why why would you go and say something like that? I mean, they won't won't like it. Of course they will they will turn their back on you for a while. And I went, Well, I'm a writer. I I live off my words and my ability to speak somewhat freely. So had I not been uh, ostracized from that, I would have been from something else. But um, it is true that the, that the need to have children uh, in the schools uh, is, of course, important for a community uh, and its survival, and and how you can you attract new citizens to this uh, area because if there's a school people will come so what happened up in two as it's called the uh, the region where the cold hawaiians these surfers uh, moved like 30 20 30 years ago was that they also they started surfing on these waves up there in a place called klitmuller 
it was German uh, surfers primarily, and people just didn't like them um, because of the Second World War. That's one thing, and also because they don't didn't like uh, intruders as such. But they brought new blood to the place because they actually settled there. Uh, tourists come and go, and are quite destructive in the landscape at time. But surfers uh, settled there, and they brought in um, higher education also, and uh, a different kind of materialism, uh, different approach to landscape and nature, um, a lot of ecology, for instance, and children, because they were young people. So they came and they settled and they had babies. So the schools thrived, the entire community thrived. So I would say uh, the cold Hawaii culture, the surfer culture that has that is growing all over this coastline is a good example of what villagers here really crave. Yeah, you know, the the World War II connection is interesting too because I hadn't thought of that as a reason why the cold Hawaiians wouldn't be welcome. I thought it was mostly that they were hippies. Oh, that's <laughs> but, also it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like the World War II keeps cropping up throughout on the coastline and it, it makes sense. You know, it was a long time ago, but you can still see these German bunkers remaining mm -hmm. on the coastline. But what I loved about that image is that you have, well, it, the coast is full of danger, you know, one secure cliffs just like falling into the sea, rising sea level, shipwrecks, a German invasion. At the same time as you have all of that, you also have these just fantastically beautiful images, you know, the tulip ship that ran aground in Jutland and these flowers that blossomed all along the coast the next year. And these German bunkers that have had these giant horse heads and tails attached to them and turned into these whimsical sculptures. <laughs> What do you think the impulse is behind that kind of creativity? More than anything, that humans leave signs wherever they go. This is one really interesting thing about going to the sea every time when the tourist season is gone or after Easter when there's been a lot of people out here, is that people, uh, the guests at the sea, build signs. They find debris and things from the last storm and then they build big crosses or they they leave something and that sign can be a German bunker, a Nazi bunker, that's one sign you can leave. You can leave a tulip and you could also just leave, you know, some sometimes I find volleyball lanes built from debris because that's what humans do. Or they put they they take stones and they paint with the stones in the sand, suns or something, or they write their names with with shells. And, and I mean, that's the one thing I've more than anything learned about humans on this coastline is that we need to communicate constantly. If not with ourselves, then with the ones that we think will come after us and notice that we were there and and these German bunkers now are filled with graffiti and tags uh, made by the granddaughters and grandsons of the German uh, soldiers who stayed in them, or the great-grandsons. And they leave signs. It's like, I was here too, Grandpa, but now I'm a hippie, and I'm anti-war, and I'm anti... You know, this kind of communication is super fascinating about humankind. Um 
and uh, it can be incredibly ugly, as uh, the Nazi uh, regime was, but also immensely beautiful, uh, like some of the other things uh, that we do, because we have these two sides. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the communication could be so explicit in something like the graffiti left in those bunkers. It's anonymous in some ways, because it's not like you're saying that to the person who lived in the bunker. It's sort of just like left there. And I, I think that's interesting because there are, there's a lot of things that also go unsaid mm-hmm. in these communities on these coastlines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one moment you describe over the Kongo, the, the King River, which was the former border between Germany and Denmark. You write, I don't see all the invisible dividing lines in the mm-hmm. borderland. They speak their allegiance in code. The people I meet have traumas inherited as well as current. They know loss, and they know that everything that is won can be forfeited again. If it isn't the storm surges, it's time. All this is only borrowed unless you fight for it. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean? Um, everything on this coast is only borrowed because the sea is so rough and the coastline is made of sand. So it pushes around everything all the time. So that German bunker that was there five years ago is now 10 meters into the water and will be eaten slowly by the waves. So that is one thing. Everything is temporary. That church that was built 800 years ago is now long gone. It's in the water. That's one thing. So when you live uh, in the border area, uh, that is not only that nature will take things from you, that it will flood you and take your sheep and take your buildings or your wife or your husband. It is also that history and politics will do that. So that what they know on a borderline, and I think that doesn't matter what kind of borderline you go to in the world, that's what. Uh, that's what's happening there. It is that you know that that border can move and that history can take things from you, that politics can take things from you, that it might be better on the other side. So with the King River, way back when, when the, the First World War, for instance, um, everything depended on, on what side of that tiny river you were born. If you were born on the Danish side, you didn't have to go to Verdun and all these places where you were being killed. But just five meters south across that river, you would be sent to war. So that's uh, that's what I'm trying to see, that the forces of culture and the forces of history and the forces of nature uh, will end up taking things from you. And if you look at life itself, I mean... Uh, we are going to die. <laughs> I mean, so it's just a matter of time, right? So, <laughs> so that goes for everything uh, under the sun. Hmm. I think, in a way, everything under the sun is like a borderland or a borderline. You know, that's the title of the penultimate chapter. But I think it could also be about the whole book. You know, about the coast, about so many things. It's such a potent metaphor. Mm-hmm. You know, the North Sea coast doesn't just describe a borderland between countries, you know, equally describes the border between the land and the sea, which is like also fuzzy and unclear and changing or between language and culture, which just seep through the whole book. 
can't really escape the metaphor or the, or the water, I guess. <laughs> no, but that's a, that's a very good point. And I think you're right. Um, and also the things we, we feel like we have to express when we are at, at a borderline. I think Joni Mitchell actually wrote a wonderful song about that, you know, <laughs> called borderline, but, mm-hmm. um, um, it, it's true. I mean, and sometimes if you live in very protected community societies, and I will say that, that Scandinavian have very protected societies compared to most other countries in the world, we are super cozy and, and very protected economically and have a social welfare system and all these things. Maybe we sometimes forget how fragile things can be. Uh, also looking at things in a, a society, that societies can collapse and we can lose things. Um, but that awareness is always here on the coastline. That's, you never get to forget that. And that is also healthy in some ways. It makes you empathetic towards the fact that things can be lost and that you should pay attention uh, to what you have and uh, protect it. And also I wanted, when I wrote this book, I, it was very important to me to approach this landscape with love. And as a novelist and a writer of diff- many different forms, I can tell you this. It is incredibly <laughs> difficult to to go into a book with that angle because all literature is about conflict, right? We have to find the conflict and the battle and who's going to die and who's going to have who and what's going to happen. And there is so much conflict in the world right now and the way social media works and how we communicate and escalate conflicts is a problem. So I wanted to ease it over. I mean, but not seeing what is to be hated, but what is to be loved and how we share it. Because we, I mean, I live here with people who have all kinds of political ideas and also political ideas that I uh, don't like, but I still share this landscape with them. And, uh, and I still have to take care of this predicament with them. And if we see the others as enemies, who's going to fix this climate problem uh, that we have? Because that has to start somehow with love for the place where we live and where we all live. We have links in the show notes to Dorda Norris's new book, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. I also highly recommend the novel Mirror Shoulder Signal, which was my introduction to Dorda's work. It's the story of a woman who decides to learn how to drive in middle age and is written from the same perspective of love and does it really all have to be about conflict that we were talking about at the end of this conversation. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>